Hi guys, my name is Anton. I've been here once before and they've invited me back even with my poor English. So just once again a disclaimer, English isn't my first language, it's not my second language, it's maybe my fourth language. So please excuse me all the tenses mistakes that I made. Um, yeah, because this is usually a big challenge. Um, whenever I have a handled mic, I feel very un uncomfortable. I feel like Yuri else wanting to sing Husemin's donkey. Um, so this is uh, extra difficult tonight so thanks a lot for that one but I'll forgive you guys yeah <laughs> luckily my wife and kids as well <laughs> I don't know why but they do um, pardon uh, depends what happens tonight eh? <laughs> oh, it's a difficult topic to speak about death um, I think most of us have been confronted by death in one way or other in our lives I want to start off tonight that you guys turn to each other and share a story of where you have been confronted by death of a loved one, a colleague, a friend at school, a family member, and just quickly share your, share your experience, what you felt, your emotions um, when you were confronted by the grave in your lives. So just quickly take a moment and share. Okay, if you guys can wrap it up. Okay. I think if I can sum it up, if we speak about death, there's two words that I can sum it up quite good, quite well, is that death sucks. It's not nice to be confronted by death in your life. If you experience death of a close loved one, you have a lot of questions, you want to be comforted. If one of your friends goes through this terrible tragedy, you want to bring comfort as well. And there's a lot of questions, a lot of unanswered things we experience when we are confronted by death. Um, there's a writer in America with the name of Lawrence Samuels. And in one of his books called Death American Style, he tackled the question about how do modern Americans deal with death. And he wrote the following about postmodern people's attitude, attitude towards death. He says the following, this horrible little secret we have, instead of being the most natural thing in the world, denial became the operative word, because death is oppositional to our culture's defining values like youth, progress and achievement. He says the whole culture in regards to death, instead of it being the most natural thing that we are, comf uh, that we are confronted with, is that because of all the medical science, uh, advances in the medical sciences, and all the advances that people live longer, um, that people today are so afraid and uncomfortable about to, to speak about death and be confronted about death, that they are actually losing something in our lives. The world of the Bible was known for its poor hygiene. I don't know if you know, but they didn't have the hygiene rules of today. Uh, they weren't, they were, they, they didn't have a lot of medical sciences that we have today. As he sick was, it So they didn't go very well those days. And people didn't live that long. The life expectancy of people in ancient Israel was the following that just 40% of the population got, old, got to be older than 16 years. So just 4 out of 10 people lived longer than 16 years. 25% of the population lived past the age of 25. 10% of the population lived past the age of 46, so then they is and 3% of the population lived past the age of 60. So today we live in a culture where death is something strange. Um, it's the abnormality, it's the exception rather than the rule. And I think that has influenced our perception about death and our comfort with death immensely. 
today in South Africa, the life expectancy um, improved in the last eight years from 49 to 62. Eight years ago, the life expectancy of a normal South African person was 49 years old. And today, it's 62 years old. I think one of the main reasons why it improved so suddenly in eight years in South Africa is the government's change in its AIDS policy. Eight years ago, under Mbeki's presidency, they were AIDS denialists. It is nothing like HIV, it doesn't bring AIDS and you don't need to use antiretrovirals. But when Zuma came to power, they brought in the ARVs. And I think that made a big change. But I think the logic of it is that death is an exception in our lives today. As a sick word, that today we're not as often confronted by death as people in the past. We are cautious when it comes to death because it seems so final and it doesn't happen the way that it's portrayed in Hollywood, uttering your last final sentence of profound information to the loved one. I don't know if you ever watched Braveheart at one moment before they chopped off his head and shouted freedom and, the whole, and it inspired the whole of the Scottish army to stand up against England. It doesn't happen that way. Few people have the privilege to not everybody has the opportunity to fix relationships before that last moment we breathe our last breath out. Uh, so death is difficult. What should we as believers, what should we as followers of Jesus believe about death and the afterlife? Is it a scary transition? Is it a lonely journey? What's it going to be like? Are we going to play harps and sing Kumbaya, my Lord, the entire day? Is it going to be a world full of rainbows, unicorns and fairies? Because if that's going to be the afterlife, I want to press eject right now. Because that's not something that inspires me, that's not something that gives me hope, that's not something that I want to be part of. What is death going to be like for us as, as Christian followers of Jesus? And my main question is, do we really think the correct way about death? Because I listen to all the stories that Christian followers of Jesus normally tell us about death, and they speak about heaven, and they speak about clouds, and singing, and it's going to be, hmm? There are mansions. If you're a lawyer, you're not going to, you're going to live in the squatter camps. If you're a doom, you're going to live in the mansions. Um, that's the kind of perception that most Christians and followers of Christ have about death. But what is it really going to be like? And do the scriptures really give us a clue to help us in our understanding of what life after death is going to be like. And what do you think If I ask you now to come to the front and say, okay, my idea of what life after death is going to be, what do you really think, what do you really believe about your death one day? What are you going to experience the moment you breathe your last breath? What are you going to experience the moment you open up your eyes in the next dimension? Is it going to be something like that? What's it going to be when your life has ended? And what can you for us as Nicholas say what Paul followed? The afterbeer week, rondom se Paul se doet in die eeuwigheid en wat wag. Is there going to be a magic reunion where they're going to know each other again? Our parents going to be able to recognize their children that died while they were still while they were still unborn. Our children going to know their parents who died tragically in a car accident in life after death. What's it going to be like? And I think the answer lies in the story that says that portrays the opposite of death. And that's in the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to get to that now. But first, let's quickly uh, speak about the context of ancient Israel, about what the people believed about death and the afterlife. And before we get to the story in John 20, about Jesus' Jesus's resurrection. The first thing uh, you 
probably know this, but the whole world was under Roman authority when Jesus lived. So the Greek-Roman influence about death and the afterlife was as follows. They believed that when you died, Hermes led you to the depths of the earth. But there was a man here that And there you received a provisional abode, a temporary house where you will stay in until your day of judgment arrives. When you get the letter in the post in the underworld, okay, it's now time for the judgment chair to be Then there's a guy with the name of Sharon, and he is the boatsman that takes you across the river Styx to the court of judgment where your whole life will play in front of the judges and we will find if you lived a good life or a bad life. The Romans believed that if you lived a bad life, if you were found guilty in the court of judgment, you would take the left road and that would lead to a dark place called Tartarus. And that place was the place of eternal punishment. Interesting, the writer of 2 Peter mentions this place when he speaks about the, um, the judgment that the angels got that rebelled against God. That they were sent to this place. So 2 Peter also wrote about this place called Tartarus, where all the guilty people lived after they were dead. When you were found to have lived a pious life, a good life, you take the right road, and that leads to the fields of Eleazar. Where have you heard those words before? Where do you have and what's a movie to little gesien? Gladiator, boom. There at the end of the scenes where it's just the wheat fields, his wife and children comes running to him, everything is bright. And that's what they believed about about Eleazar is that everything is beautiful there. Everything is bright and everything is happy. The Jewish influences, the Jews thought about death in the following way. They thought that or they they figured that the day you die, your body and your soul separate. Your body stays underground in the earth. I don't know if you know, but they didn't believe in cremation like most of the Roman and the Greek world. They believed that you need to be buried. And the reason they did that was after a year that you were buried, they went up to dig up your bones. And then they took your bones and put it in a white cloth and then placed it into a um, stone mausoleum so that you have the correct bones one day when you will be resurrected again on the, um, on the day of God's judgment. So... Um, they thought the body and the soul will separate when you die. And there were no differentiation in this afterlife between the dead. There were no good people or bad people, good Jews, bad Jews, holy Jews, unholy Jews. They saw that everybody, all the dead gathered in a great cavity in the earth called Sheol. And there the dead would live on a spiritual life, the same as that they lived upstairs in the real world, under the watchful eyes of God. Until the day of judgment, well, God will come and he will judge the people, and all the holy people, all the law-abiding Jews will be resurrected and given new bodies. So Judaism was the only religion in the antiquity times that believed in something called resurrection. So when Jesus spoke to his disciples about that, I'm going to die, even though they didn't really understand it, but I'm going to be raised again. They had this picture in their minds that God will, be, God will raise Jesus one day on the day of judgment, somewhere uncertain in the unsure future, God will raise him as well. So let's read together from John 20. Okay, John 20. Um, John 20 verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. The Jews usually had this practice and when somebody died in the family, they would mourn for a week at the grave site or in the stone grave. Uh, they will open the door and that's why they had all the mirror and all the goodness where the owners were sitting and the door was open. So now they five or six could the owners really begin to reach it. So they usually mourned at the grave where the person was buried. But Jesus was buried on the 
Friday afternoon. And what started in the Jewish culture on Friday evening? Sabbath. And they weren't allowed to do anything on Sabbath. Um, they weren't allowed to do any, go to the graves. They weren't allowed to walk around a long way. So the first moment that Jesus' followers could visit the grave and mourn him was on the Sunday morning that happened here. Just some useless piece of information. Uh, according to archaeologists, archaeologists, um, they see that the average person in the times of ancient Israel wouldn't have been able to remove the stone in front of the grave because the average woman was 1.52 meters and she weighed about 45 kilograms. Yeah, what is it? And the And the average male um, was about 1.62 meters and 62 kilograms. So they wouldn't have been able to move the stone. So the first moment that the followers of Jesus had the opportunity to go and mourn at Jesus' grave was on the Sabbath. And when they got there, the stone was rolled away. And then we read from verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Okay, so Mary got there. She saw the stone was rolled away. She went to tell Peter and John and the disciples. And Peter and John had a race towards the grave. Um, John came there first. Peter had a gap. He was first in the grave. And then they said, Oh, Jesus is not with um, this the, There's no body. There's just the cloth that he was buried in. That's still on, that's still on the bed in, inside the grave. And now verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she, swe- as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I have put him. At this she turned and around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it, who is it you, are, who you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Remember, important, they must know where the bones of Jesus is, so after a year they'll come and put it in the stone mausoleum. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned towards him and cried out in her make, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples of the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told him that she had said, and she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the first day of the week, the Monday evening, on a Sunday evening, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed unto them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Why do I think that the answer in our thoughts about death is in this piece of scripture is because the Greek culture didn't think about this life after death. The Jewish people thought there was going to be life after death, but they're first going to be in this sub phase of life where nothing's going to happen. Then one day God's going to resurrect them and give them new bodies. But in this story about Jesus' resurrection, it's radically different to what the people thought it was going to be. The first different way that Jesus embodied the resurrection and what's going to happen to us is that 
in John 17, 18, and 19, where the whole story is about Jesus being captured, Jesus before Roman, uh, before Pilate, Jesus' suffering, Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus', Jesus death. There's a lot of Old Testament ref references in those chapters that discuss that about what's going to happen to the Messiah. There's a lot of Old Testament references about what's going to happen to the Messiah that's going to come and free the Jewish people from the Roman people. So there's a lot of scripture. But say that when this precise what can happen with the Messiah, so the Jews knew that if this happened to the Messiah, that this is the true Messiah. But the weird, strange thing is, in the parts where that speaks about the resurrection of Jesus and his decision of Jesus, there's absolutely no scripture reference to the Old Testament that this is what's going to happen to the Messiah. So the first way that Jesus' resurrection is different than what the Jews expected is that. There's no scriptural proof about that, what is going to happen. So, so the fact that the scriptural verwijsings is in Jesus' opstelling is safe for us, that is radical different than what the Jews expect. So if the followers of Jesus with, were making the resurrection something, uh, a figment of their imagination, a story that they told, they would have used some of the Old Testament scripture to prove that. But they didn't do that. The second thing that's quite different in the way that the Jews were expecting the Messiah to be is who were the first witnesses to Jesus' res resurrection? Who was the first witness? Women. The last witness that you want if you want a credible story translated in that culture. The Jews believed that three things of a woman usually need to be covered. Her head, her mouth, and her legs. The reason firstly is the legs, because if her legs isn't closed, um, then she's going to um, tempt the other men to do strange things to them, even though they don't shave their legs, um, but by awareness. Um, the second thing that needed to be closed of Jewish women was their mouths. Um, and the reason for that was, is that the people believed that the woman was going to embarrass the men in the public, so they were not allowed to speak. And the heads needed to be covered, because your kop not was not seen as a prostitute. So, if I was Jesus, and if I were resurrected from the dead, and if I wanted to change the entire world through what I did and what I showed people of God, I definitely would not have picked the women. I would have pitched up at Pilate and said, how's it, Poppy? Uh, I'm back. You thought you killed me, but you didn't. If I were in charge, I would have asked Jesus to go to the Jewish council and said, the joke's on you guys. You thought you killed me, but I am the true Messiah. So what's again radically different? Jesus chooses the most, the most untrustworthy kind of people to start the story that he really rose from the dead. The third thing that's quite interesting about what we can see what was hints can create about our resurrection one day and what's life going to be after death is the weird description that the gospel writers give about Jesus' resurrected body. The first thing is they said you had a normal human body. When Jesus was, Jesus was mistaken for the gardener in the, by Mary in the garden, um, Jesus was mistaken for a fellow traveler by the guys that were traveling to Emmaus. Um, when Jesus showed himself to his disciples, you could see they have marks in his hands, in his feet, and in his side. In Luke said that Jesus ate of his disciples. So the gospel writers want to portray the post-resurrected Jesus that is fully human. But then they in full means fast. But the second strange thing is, they also describe him in a glorified and transformed body. The disciples were carrying in a closed door, in a closed room. The door was locked, whoop, and suddenly Jesus appears. 
when Jesus goes into the heaven, when Jesus session, he just disappears into the sky. So the Gospels also portray Jesus' post-resurrected body that is fully glorified, transformed in the likeness of God. So remember that when you think about what our state is going to be um, after death. And a fourth interesting thing about John 20 and Jesus' resurrection, about life after death, he said Jesus never hinted or given his believers any future hope of what life is going to be after death. The fact that Jesus opgestaan het in die doodheid, the fact that Jesus even skrif as disciples verskyn het, it's told those disciples that Jesus, guys, Jesus really is the Messiah. Jesus really is the Lord. Jesus really is the um, Son of God. And the fact that they opgestaan het in die doodheid, kom sê vir ons that His kingdom has arrived. That the new era of God's kingdom has started. And that they weren't worried about what's going to happen after they die, what's going to happen with them when they die. They realized that because Jesus was resurrected, that God's kingdom started now, and we must start living this kingdom to the people that's not part of God's family. They realized that they had to start living as people of the new era. The afterlife was a non-issue for them. They knew that the one who embodied God's love and grace will be there. They had a kind of a Kuna Matara vibe about death and the afterlife. It means no what? It doesn't matter what happens. That Jesus rose. It's the new kingdom of God. And we must start living this so that other people can experience who God is and who His grace is. And um, our biggest love is. So what do the resurrection of Jesus tell us about our death and our afterlife? And the first thing is, Jesus' resurrection emphasizes that we do not have to be afraid. That Jesus already defeated the powers of the grave. That not even death can separate us from the love and the presence of God. He is present in this life and the next. I believe the Bible communicates two seasons after death for us as Christians. But there's two seasons, two years sooner for us as Christians, for here and already do it. Most other religions believe in life after death. Um, the Hindus believe in reincarnation. The Muslims believe about the paradise of all the virgins. The Buddhists believe they want to disappear into the complete nothingness. The only religion in the world that believes in two seasons, two phases after death, is the Christian religion. And the two seasons are both encapsulated by the presence of God. The begin and end in the world of God. Not one of these two seasons is without the existence and the presence of the Lord. The first season after death is the moment we breathe out our last breath and we are in the presence of God of God in a spiritual dimension. So the first time when we have our last Bible, say the Bible is not the worthiness of the living God. That's why Jesus could say to the murderer on the cross that in Luke 23, Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today will be with me in paradise. And that's why Paul writes in Philippians 1, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If Paul didn't have the promise that the moment he closed his eyes he will be in the presence of God, how else can his death be a gain? He had to know, he had to understand, the Spirit had to show to him that the moment you close your eyes you're going to be in the presence of the Lord. If I am to go on living in the body, this means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is by far better. 
but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So the Bible definitely tells us the first season of the death is that we're going to be in the presence of the Lord. It's going to be a spiritual space. I don't know exactly how, I don't know exactly what. We're going to be in the presence of God. And the second season after death for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is the promise of our resurrection on the return of Jesus with glorified and transformed bodies. That the eerste season for us as believers is in the teenwoordigheid van the Heer in ons dood. And the tweede ene is, is that Jesus weer kom, hy gaan ons levendig maak, en hy gaan vir ons nieuwe verheerlikte lichaam gee. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, This image of planting a dead seed, and raising a life plant is a mere sketch at best, but perhaps it will help in approaching the mystery of the resurrection body. But only if you keep in mind that when we were raised, we raised for good, alive forever. The corpse that's planted is no beauty, but when it's raised, it's glorious. Put in the ground weak, it comes up powerful. The seed sown is natural, the seed grown is supernatural. Same seed, same body, but what a difference from when it grows down in physical mortality to when it is raised up in spiritual immortality. But I've already bought over the Bible for us here in 1 Corinthians 15. Is that we're going to be able to get the season of the season of the season of the season in a physical reality, where we won't be confronted with our own brokenness, our sinful nature, our sadness, will be restored, renewed. That God's initial plan with why He created us, before we messed everything up with sin, that's the kind of bodies, that's the kind of um, physical reality that we're going to live in after the resurrection. And the interesting thing is not to live in heaven. And that's why I want sometimes to run with my head into a brick wall and say that we think many times so hard to go to heaven. We give our lives to Christ so that we can go to heaven. But the Bible never says that we're going to go to heaven after death. If we read in um, Revelation 20, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth have passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautiful dress for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell among with them. There will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the Thursday will give water without cost from the spring water of life. The second season of Christians after death is not that we're going to go to heaven, play harps, sing kumbaya, and there's going to be rainbows and fairies and unicorns. The second season after death is when heaven and earth will come together, where the new Jerusalem will come down to earth, and where we will live a new, in a new reality on the earth that we already live in. Toe ek hierdie goed besef het, van ek het altyd gedog, that God calls me to be a follower of Christ with the purpose of going to heaven. And I realized that that's not what God called me to do. He called me to be part of His new kingdom, to live in, to live in such a way that other people make the decision to follow God and that they will be part of me when the new Jerusalem comes and we are resurrected and we live in a new earth and a new heaven and everything is... In your physical reality will be no pain, no sorrow, nothing bad. That also the Hirupumimal Titahani. 
dat die Bijbel sê ons wordt geroep om Godse koninkryk hier sigbaar te maken. want sy koninkryk gaan met sy wederkomst gaan hier sigbaar and this makes me think in a new way about how we treat the ecology hoe groen ons eindelijk if we really believe that God's going to come and make the whole creation the whole earth, the whole heaven new and it's going to be this in this kind of environment going to be the, we're going to live the life that God intended in the beginning of the creation then we must learn and we must change our ways that we treat the earth we aren't called to be followers of Christ with the purpose of going to heaven but to be part of God's new kingdom here on earth and that's why this was a non-issue to the followers of Jesus they weren't worried about what's going to happen after death after the resurrection because they knew that God's intention God's purpose God's heart is for this earth and that his kingdom be visible in this day in this age in this place in the year and now there's insane lot of uncertainties when we speak about death exactly how it's going to be I have absolutely no idea how that first season is going to be I have no idea but it's going to be in the presence of God how the new earth is going to look with the new Jerusalem I have no idea but I've come to know God in this life as a loving and gracious and gracious and just being not racist <laughs> gracious <laughs> gracious and just being in this life Therefore, it will be a loving and gracious, not racist, and just God in the next. So the first thing is, when we're confronted with death, is we really have to reprogram ourselves in how we think about it. It's not about getting a ticket to go to heaven. It's not about getting, doing everything just so we can be removed from this reality with the promise of something new and something different. That was never God's intention, to take us away. God's intention was to come through Jesus and restore and reconcile and renew and make us live as members of that kingdom. The second insane thing about death and the afterlife is that even if we struggle with the idea of death and the afterlife, we cannot allow that to become our focus. It cannot be the most important questions that we spend our time on. Our focus must be God's new kingdom and that God's new kingdom has arrived in the year and now. In Jesus' resurrection, God shouted to the world that God's new kingdom is here. A world where we can believe that God is truly in control. Where the words on the cross came to pass that says Jesus is king. God's kingdom is present and not yet present. It's a juxtaposition where it is but it isn't yet. But it will be fulfilled. The finality will happen at the return of Jesus. And our calling is not to get more souls to heaven. But to live in such a way that God's kingdom can be made visible in this life. To live in such a way that God's kingdom will infiltrate this world. That believers and unbelievers will experience God's love and grace and care. And I believe that is what Jesus meant when he prayed in Matthew 6. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, 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 hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When I realized that this life is about living the kingdom of God in the here and now and not to get my ticket stamped for heaven, I realized that this life is not a meaningless struggle. That whatever I do has a purpose. That whatever I feel is important. That whatever I am has meaning. If I paint or sing or pray or teach or care or write, it plays an integral part of establishing God's kingdom in this world. So how do we understand death and afterlife after I said all of these things
in regards to scriptures like Philippians 3 that says the following, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await the Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What did Paul meant when he said that we are citizens in heaven? The Roman Empire, Roman Empire functioned like this. It was built on warfare, about um, controlling the world, about um, getting new land, um, um, triumphing over different nations. So Rome, the city of Rome, was overcrowded. And there were a lot of soldiers that retired that didn't have a place to stay. And they couldn't go to Rome because there were too many people that already lived in Rome. So that's why the Roman government decided to start Roman colonies all over the space so that the Roman soldiers could retire in one of those colonies. And the purpose when they lived in those colonies wasn't to live the Roman life and bring come with the, with the promise of coming back to Rome one day. They were planted in those colonies like Philippians and Colossians where those people lived to live the Roman life there. N.T. Wright said the following, he said, the point about Philippi being a colony of Rome was not that the citizens would go back to Rome one day, but that so it was hoped they would bring the benefits of Roman civilization to Philippi. And I think that's what we as followers of Christ are called to do. Not to live with the purpose and the hope that we're going to go back one day to the mothership and everything's going to be happy and good and nice there, but we're called to bring the benefits of God's kingdom to this life. So that's my take about death and what happens to us after we die. Two seasons. The moment we close our eyes, we're in the presence of God. But then we live with the promise that we're going to be resurrected again in a new Jerusalem where heaven and earth are going to be united, where we're going to live a life without pain, without sorrow, without brokenness. But it's supposed to be a non-issue. We should not focus on that. We should not be worried about that. We must trust the God that we learn to experience in this life that is good and just and will be good and just in the next life. But the resurrection of Jesus has challenged us that we must bring God's kingdom to the here and now. If we start asking questions about death, I think we need to start better questions and say, okay, ons weer die dood kom. Ons weer is gaan eeuwers die eeuwers skop en dit gaan ook met my en jou gebeur. Maar wat beteken Jesus' opstanding vir my en jou vandag? And what needs to change in my life? Het is verkeerde vraag om te vraag, wat gaan my gebeur na ek doodgaan? Die vraag van Jesus' opstanding is, wat op deze aarde doen jy met jou leven nou? Wat mense deel maak en include in God's kingdom? Goeie wafte. that it's in his weakness, he's truly, hoe kom die grootheid van God rechtig eerst hier, in sy swakheid is hy sterk, in his weakness he's strong. So uh, I completely agree that God came to renew us, and from his viewpoint that's who we are, but I, the way that we live in a broken world is, I'm not, I still struggle with choices that I make, I still make mistakes, I still sin sometimes, that's not who I am, and that's what Jesus came to restore me from, but I still struggle, but I believe there's going to be a time where none of that's going to happen, where there's no death, no pain, no sorrow, um, no negative choices that has negative influences on other people as well. Um, so I completely agree with you totally that God came to make us new and Jesus' resurrection said us is need, is to renew, to reconcile all our goodness. But we still live in a broken world and the promise that I read in the scriptures is that God is going to come and he's going to come and restore that as well.
different in regards to this because I think you've got a lot more trust in human beings realizing the identity in Christ than that I do. Um, and it's okay on the physical. <laughs> so, anything, any, any other question? Art is not for non that you'll begin it understanding. Then break down all the preconceived ideas that you have about death. It's going to be heaven and it's going to be story and nice and cozy and comfy, a different place. But that's not what Jesus intended this world for from the beginning of creation. He intended this world to be a place where God we worship, we will we live holy, where ons a getuienis uitstral vir wie rauwikkel is, vir wie God is. And that got ruined when he made Eve. No, when he started sinning. Ek a grap net. Grap net. Ek grap net dit. So, that was... Dit is net a grapie. Um, oh, this actually track off shucks. So, and that all got destroyed when sin came into the world. And the whole promise is that one day Jesus is going to restore everything, restore ourselves in terms of re- reconcile us to God. But there's a promise of something more than that. Um, so, this is what we want to do. We want to do what we want to here in now. Cool. Dear Lord, thank you that we can know that you are the God that is out of time, out of space. That is beter alles en jy ook benaad. En ons is gechallenged word met vrouw wat die dood en hoe dit na die tijd gaan wees. En ons absoluut die clueless is omdat so baie theorie is, so baie argumente is, so verskilfelde meer van verstaan is oor dit. Dat ons kan vasthou aan jy wat die God is, wat goed is, wat vol liefde is, wat rechtvaardig is en wat vir kinders sorg. Dus daarom sonder enige vrees hoef te wonder hoe dit gaan wees, want jy wat hierdie kant van die leven vir ons goed is, vir ons zorg en vir ons lief is, dat jy ook die kant van die dood vir ons staan om wacht. En ek sal met ons dier die hekke en dier die poorte van die dood gaan. Heere God, dank het ek kan weet dat jy eerste, hoe kan ek sê, punt van focus is hoe ons in hierdie leven leef. That you were resurrected so that we can live your kingdom in the year and now. To show the world what kind of God you are to be your hand and feet to show your love and grace to be your caring arms to the world that needs you so much en ek op het rechtig hier is ons al kom motiveer en sal kom help my anders te denk hier oor so dat ons die hand en voete rechtig in die lewe kan wees that we can create this world where we realize our identities that we are forgiven, reconciled, renewed reborn, rebirthed, everything we can start to live in such a way that other people want to join your family and be part of your family so dat die ook hulle sal kom niet maak, so die ons reeds gedoen. Help ons raarig om ons identiteit te verstaan, en wie ons is, na die dood en die opstaan. En help ons om so te leef, dat mense in hulle reeds die koninkryk hier kan kom leef. So dat jou kingdom will come, on earth as it is in heaven. En die kostbare naam van Jesus. Amen.